Good morning, Plum Creek. It's great to have you with us today. I am really glad that you joined us. No matter who you are, whether you're here in person or you're watching online, whether you're brand new to our church or you've been here a long, long time, I'm glad you're here. You know, it, it's always a good thing to come together and worship God, but on certain days, I especially feel the need to worship together. And today is one of those days. It's been a tough week for our church. Uh, this past Monday, uh, Steve Record passed away. Uh, many of us knew and loved Steve. He was a former elder here at our church. Uh, he was a faithful servant and a faithful friend. Then on Wednesday, we got some tough news about Gary Thompson, who is also much loved here at Plum Creek. Uh, Gary's leukemia is getting worse. The prognosis is not good, and we're praying for a miracle, but no matter what, we're trusting in Jesus, and we're holding on to the promise of eternal life. And then in addition to those two situations, uh, many families in our church have been hit by COVID. We've had several people in the hospital. It's just been a tough time for many people. And you know, when you go through a difficult time, it helps you think about what really matters in life. And in the end, it comes down to relationships. It's our relationships with each other, and most importantly, our relationship with God. So this is one reason why the church is so important. This is a place where we focus on what really matters in life, and we come before God and listen to Him. So I pray that's what happens here today. I pray that God will speak to your heart and tell you exactly what you need to hear. Maybe you need his comfort this morning. Maybe you need to be convicted. But all of us need the good news of the gospel, and we need the hope that only Jesus gives. So let's dive into Scripture this morning. It's the second week of our series called Kingdom 101. Uh, which is basically a crash course on the kingdom of God. Uh, here at Plum Creek, we've set aside 2022 as the year of the kingdom. And over the next 12 months, we're praying these three words from the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. And to help us focus our prayers, we'll have a prayer calendar every month that, that gives you a specific area to pray about every day. I hope you've prayed along with us this week, but if you haven't, we invite you to join us. Uh, you can get a paper version of this calendar in the Beacon, which is our newsletter. Uh, that's available in the back of the room here. Uh, we'd also be happy to put you on our mailing list. A digital version of the calendar is up on our website at plumcreek.org prayer. And over this past week, we prayed for lots of different needs. But we started out with those three simple words, your kingdom come. And like I said last Sunday, if, if we're going to pray that prayer, we need to know what it is that we're praying about. So let's do a, a quick review of last week's sermon. First, we saw that the kingdom of God was a huge theme in the teaching of Jesus. It seems like he talked about this kingdom all the time from the very beginning of his ministry. For example, early on, Jesus went to a region called Galilee, and he said, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, this was a big deal. When Jesus spoke these words, something historic was happening 
God was establishing a new kingdom. And this was very good news for anyone who was willing to listen. But like I said last week, a lot of folks are confused by this phrase, kingdom of God. So what is it that we're talking about here? Well, throughout this year, we're using a simple definition. The kingdom of God is any place where God's rule and his reign have truly begun. Now, of course, in in one sense, God already rules this entire universe. That's who he is. But in another sense, this world has rebelled against the kingship of God. Uh, That rebellion started way back with Adam and Eve, and the rebellion has continued throughout history because all of us have sinned against God. And our sin has left a wake of brokenness and pain and death. But the good news is, Jesus came into this world to establish the new kingdom, and he invites all of us to be a part of it. He makes that possible because he sacrificed his life on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. And if you have given your life to Jesus and you've surrendered to him as king, you become a citizen of God's kingdom. It's important to remember that this kingdom comes in two stages. Stage one began with the first coming of Jesus. And that that stage of the kingdom exists here in the present. It shows up in the hearts and lives of everyone who follows Jesus. So individual Christians and the church, the true church. Stage two of God's kingdom is still in the future. Uh, One day, Jesus will return and God will establish the final perfected version of his kingdom. And that's the version that will last forever. So the kingdom is both already and not yet. And while we wait for that perfected version, God continues to build his kingdom here. And that's why we pray this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see more and more people surrender to Jesus as king. We want to see God's kingdom grow and expand all over this world. Now, like I said, Jesus preached about this kingdom just about everywhere he went. And lots of people wanted to hear what Jesus had to say because he brought hope to a group of people who were dying for hope. He also worked miracles. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. And naturally, word began to spread that this Jesus was a special guy. Before long, huge crowds showed up to see Jesus. We see that in Matthew 4.25. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So by this point, Jesus is getting mobbed, and it must have been a crazy scene. So how how did he respond to this? What did he do? Well, let's read on. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. And right here, Jesus preached the most famous sermon of all time. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a long one. In the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount takes up three chapters. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Back in the 90s, I had the privilege to visit the site where Jesus preached this sermon. If you go to Israel... 
on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, you'll find a place called the Mount of Beatitudes. I have a picture that I took while I was there, and this picture probably looks similar to what the place looked like in the time of Jesus. Uh, the landscape is kind of a natural amphitheater, and, and you can totally imagine uh, crowds, huge crowds of people gathering here to listen to Jesus as he preached. So what was this sermon about? What message was he trying to communicate? Well, not surprisingly, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. But here in this particular sermon, Jesus explains what life looks like if you are a citizen in God's kingdom. Uh, he tells us how to live as citizens of the king. And once he gets to preaching here, Jesus makes some of the most famous statements he ever said. Uh, some of these statements are profound. Uh, some of them are surprising. Some of them are a little scary. Uh, this week I made a list of several quotes from this sermon, and I want to share just a few of them with you. Uh, one example is uh, in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Right here, uh, Jesus is saying, when you live in my kingdom, it's not business as usual. You need to be a totally different kind of person, someone who brings light into this dark world. So just how different does Jesus expect us to be? Well, that's what he talks about in the rest of this sermon. And basically, a citizen in God's kingdom will stick out like a sore thumb. You will be different in the way that you relate to others, in the way that you relate to God, and even the way that you relate to yourself. Jesus gets very specific in this sermon. Uh, listen to what he expects from his followers. He said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Wow, it's pretty intense. Uh, along similar lines, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How about this one? Jesus said, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Just a few more. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He also said, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This one's popular. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. All right, one last quote. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus is not messing around here, is he? In this statement, he expects you to give God the number one place in your life. Seek the kingdom of God first, above everything else and everyone else. All these quotes come straight from the Sermon on the Mount. So when we read these things all at the same time, what's your reaction? If you're like me, and you've heard these statements all your life, you just kind of roll with it. And it's easy to forget that these teachings sound very extreme to anyone who's never heard them before. 
A few years ago, a woman named Virginia Stem Owens wrote about an experience that she had teaching literature at Texas A&M. She gave her freshman English class an assignment. She said, I want you to read the Sermon on the Mount, and then I want you to write a paper responding to what Jesus taught. Uh, Owens discovered that many of her students were not familiar with the Bible at all, and she was surprised by their reactions to this sermon. She read through their papers, one after another, and these students, they were angry. They hated it. One of them said, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Another student wrote this. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery. That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement I have ever heard. Woo. Virginia Sim Owens had a fascinating response to this experience. She was actually encouraged by these students. She said, this is the real thing, a pristine response to the gospel not filtered through a cultural haze that's developed over the last 2,000 years. See, to fresh eyes and fresh ears, the Bible is just as offensive today as it was in the first century. But the truth is, many of us, if you grew up in church, we have a different response to the Sermon on the Mount. We don't mind picturing Jesus on a hillside with flowers all around him, teaching his disciples, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And when we read what Jesus said and when we hear it at church, we nod and agree. But then when we get out in the real world, you actually want me to love my enemies and, and, and pray for blessings for the people who hurt me? We, we don't want to say out loud that we disagree with Jesus. Because we think, surely he knows that this standard is impossible. I mean, in the real world, seriously. Never lose my temper or call someone a fool. Never have a lustful thought. Never have a single moment where I pursue money over God. It's not reasonable. So what do we do? We sort of water down what Jesus said. There's no way he could ask me to turn the other cheek after what that person did. We water down these teachings because, A, they're too hard to follow, or B, we just don't want to follow them. We start to think, ah, Jesus, he'll, he'll cut me some slack here. Nobody's perfect. He knows that. It's okay. But what if Jesus is really serious about what he said? What if he never intended us to modify or water down his teachings? Well, I'll tell you what. I see no indication that Jesus is open to negotiation here. In this sermon, he, he speaks as someone who has ultimate authority. And as the Son of God, he does have the final authority. So where does that leave us? we walk away from the Sermon on the Mount saying exactly what that one student said? It makes me feel like I have to be perfect and no one is. Wait, if that's the case, it's hard to think of the message of Jesus as good news. This sermon is, is, is a notification that we will never be acceptable to God. But we know that the coming of God's kingdom was not bad news. It was good news. Jesus said so. 
So how does that work? Well, first, if you go back to Moses and the Ten Commandments, God's standard for moral perfection, it's always been impossibly high for us. And Jesus didn't raise the standard that God set. He just clarified the situation. You see, in the time of Jesus, many people had been deceived. Many people thought they were doing a pretty good job of obeying God's commands. But Jesus said, no, all of you who think you are righteous before God, you don't get it. You are nowhere near the standard of God's righteousness. That's the bad news. But there is good news. Despite our sad attempts and our failures to do what's right, we still have the chance to be blessed by God. God's favor is possible. So who is it, Jesus? Who is it that that receives the favor of God? Well, Jesus answers that question in the very beginning of his sermon, in, in the introduction. As he begins the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't start with a joke. He doesn't tell an interesting story to draw people in. He begins with eight simple but surprising statements. These statements describe a group of people who are especially blessed by God. Uh, These eight statements are sometimes called the Beatitudes. And before we read the Beatitudes, we need to be clear about something. The Beatitudes are not entrance requirements to get into the kingdom. They describe the citizens of God's kingdom. And that may seem like a a subtle difference, but it's very significant. Uh, The Beatitudes describe the people who make Jesus their king. So let's look at just a few of the Beatitudes. Uh, Here's number one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And let's start with that word blessed. Uh, Each one of the Beatitudes begins with this word. Uh, If you're a fan of the King James Bible, you might say blessed. Uh, But what does it mean to be blessed? Well, this word blessed here comes from a Greek word that could also be defined as happy. But the word happy is a little misleading for us because of the way we normally think about happiness. In our culture, happiness depends on your circumstances. In order to be happy, you need plenty of money, you need great relationships, you need health, uh, things like that. Years ago, when Michael Jordan retired from the NBA the first time, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the Chicago Bulls, said something interesting. He said, Michael Jordan is living the American dream. And then Jerry Reinsdorf defined that dream. He said, the American dream is to reach a point in your life where you don't have to do anything you don't want to do, and you can do everything that you do want to do. That's happiness. But that's not the dream of Jesus. Jesus has a different definition of happiness. According to him, to be happy or blessed is to be deeply satisfied despite your circumstances, despite what you have or do not have. So as we read the Beatitudes, let's remember that. When you're blessed, you are deeply satisfied despite your circumstances. Okay, let's go back and read that first one again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, uh, who are we talking about here? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? 
Well, it seems obvious that the phrase poor in spirit, it's, it's not just economic poverty, but what is it? Are we talking about a soul that is in poor condition? Well, after reading several commentaries this week, uh, many of them used a, a key word to define this phrase, and the word is bankrupt. When you are spiritually bankrupt, you realize there is no chance that you could ever measure up to God's standard. Uh, no matter what you do, there is no way that you would deserve to be called good. So what is the value of being poor in spirit? Well, Jesus starts with this beatitude because this one opens the door to God's blessings. Because when you finally say, God, I am a mess, I need you, that's when he goes to work. But now this is tough for us. We, we don't want to admit how broken we are, that we're hopelessly flawed. We try to hide our brokenness. But when we come to God like the spiritual beggars that we are, he says, finally, I've been waiting for you to come to me. Now, we'll look at just a few Beatitudes here, and as we do, uh, we'll follow up each statement with a question. And with this one, ask yourself, have I truly admitted that I am spiritually bankrupt? Am I willing to say on my own, I have never been good enough and I never will be good enough outside of Christ? According to Jesus, only the poor in spirit will experience the blessings of being a part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, God does want to bless those who are not poor in spirit, but those people refuse the blessings of God because they refuse his help. So that's the first beatitude. Where does Jesus go from here? Next, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this one almost sounds ridiculous. Happy are the sad. What could Jesus mean here? Well, the word mourn is translated from a Greek word that refers to a powerful, overwhelming grief. It's a grief that's too strong to hide. So we can't spend this one. Jesus says, when your life is at its most difficult, when you are in your deepest suffering, you can still be blessed or deeply satisfied. So let's, let's try to understand this. Which mourners are you talking about, Jesus? Because everybody in the world goes through some kind of grief at one point or another. So is Jesus saying that all people at all times and all places will be comforted in their grief? Well, let's remember the context of this passage. Jesus is describing life as a citizen of God's kingdom. So no, this statement does not apply to everyone. It only applies to the people who have made Jesus their king. And how does that make a difference? Well, it's a little counterintuitive, but suffering opens the door to receive God's comfort on a deeper level. Some of you may be familiar with a version of the Bible called the Message. Uh, it's not exactly a translation, so I wouldn't use it as my only Bible. But the Message sort of restates the Bible in everyday language, which can be helpful. And I love the wording in this verse. It says, you're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. Earlier, I said this has been a tough week for our church family. 
but I've seen what can happen when God's people suffer. When you're hurting, God's presence becomes so much more real to you. His promises become so much sweeter. The truth of His Word becomes more real. Now, during the good times, it's easy to forget how much we need God. But in the bad times, we are painfully aware that God is the only one who can bring us true comfort. He's the only one who can overcome our deepest grief, our sin, and death itself. God's kingdom will last forever. And in that final perfect stage of his kingdom, all suffering will be erased and forgotten. And that is so comforting here and now. So that's the question we're asking here. Do I recognize God as the only one who brings true comfort? If so, you can draw near to him and find what you need in his presence. Okay, let's move on. The third beatitude says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Most of us are a little fuzzy about the word meek. Uh, it's not a word that we use in everyday conversation. And meekness can mean several different things, but the key word in this context is dependence. It, it sort of goes hand in hand with that idea of being poor in spirit. So ask yourself, am I willing to be weak and dependent before God? Again, this kind of humility allows a person to be receptive to God's blessings. And the blessing Jesus mentions here is that the meek will inherit the earth. Now, some people might say, this earth is a mess. I don't want it. But that's not what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about an inheritance that we do want. The people of God's kingdom will inherit a new earth. That's a restored version of this broken world. In Revelation 21, we read about the new earth and the new heaven, and that's the home we've always wanted. We'll look at one final beatitude today. Uh, this one says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In a way, the first three beatitudes really led up to this one. And this is one of those sayings that will zip right past you if you're too familiar with it. But don't let that happen. First, what is it that we hunger and thirst for here? Uh, what, what do we mean by this word righteousness? Well, it's not complicated. Uh, righteousness is a Bible word that refers to being good. It's doing the right thing, uh, having integrity, having the right motivations. So what do you think? Do you and I hunger and thirst to be a good person? I think most of us would say, yeah, I want to be a good person. But what happens when we get more specific in the way that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount? He gave us very specific standards of goodness and righteousness. And as we saw, those standards are tough. Total control of your anger. Complete sexual purity in actions and thoughts loving your enemies, forgiving those who do you wrong, and so on and so on. Back in that English class, when those students understood what Jesus meant by righteousness, they did not hunger and thirst for it. They were kind of repulsed by it. That standard made them angry. It seemed too harsh, too restrictive, too impossible. And if we're being completely honest, 
and we strip away the familiarity that we have with the words of Jesus, we can understand where those students are coming from. So let's be honest here. Do we really want to do what Jesus taught us to do? You know, Jesus did follow his own teaching. He, he lived out what he taught. So here's the question for us. Do I truly long for the character of Christ to come alive in me? And if I don't have that hunger yet, how can I get it? You know, the reality is, you can't change your own heart. We all have this bent towards selfishness. And the Sermon on the Mount confronts our selfishness every step of the way. And at the end of the day, only God can change your heart. So how does that happen? How, how do we let God change our heart? Well, the shorter answer is this. You become a citizen of God's kingdom. You make Jesus your king, and then he will change your heart so that you become like him. But it's a process. It's a process where we start to resemble the people that Jesus describes in this sermon. And as we go through the process, we can relax because God gives us grace and forgiveness. We're going to fail. We're not going to be perfect. But God does understand that. We do need to be moving in that direction, though, and that's what Jesus will do as we become citizens in his kingdom. More than anything else, though, becoming a citizen in God's kingdom, it's about trusting him. So where are you with that? Do you trust that God is truly good, that his way is better than your way, that he deserves to be your king? If you do, you will put aside your own desires. You'll give him control. You will let him rule and reign in your life. A few years ago, a couple came to me for counseling. Uh, they loved each other, but they needed some help. So we sat and talked for a while, and I learned about an area where God's word said one thing, but they were actually doing a different thing. I won't share the specifics of their story because that's their business. And in talking to them, I wasn't trying to tell them what to do. I mean, who am I? But I did want them to understand that this was a trust issue. We all have a choice to make. Either you trust in God and what he tells you, or you trust in yourself and your own ideas. And in that moment, this couple said, we're sorry. We know what the Bible says, but we just don't want to do that. We don't want to change. They weren't willing to do things God's way, and that was a trust issue. And I got to tell you, that made me so sad. I was sad partly because I was remembering all the times when I have chosen to trust myself instead of God. But I was also sad because I wanted what was best for them. And I know that God's way is better than our way. At the beginning of the sermon, I said, I hope that God speaks to your heart today. And I hope that you've heard something that you needed to hear. Maybe you needed to be convicted this morning. Maybe it's time for you to come before Jesus as a humble beggar and say, I am spiritually bankrupt. I need your help, and I'm ready to put my trust in you. Maybe it's time for you to make Jesus your king once and for all, or surrender once again.
But maybe you needed to hear something different today. Maybe you needed the comfort that we read about in that second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, there's a trust issue in that statement, too, because it's future tense. They will be comforted. And it could be that you're not feeling that comfort yet. You're still waiting. But if you keep trusting God, and if you keep running to Him, it's going to happen. You will find comfort in His presence. Uh, you, you can trust that He is with you here and now, which makes all the difference. You can also trust in His promises that one day, through Jesus, you can get to that final, perfected version of His kingdom. And you'll live in His presence forever. This is good news for anyone who's willing to receive it. So let's receive the good news. Let's trust in this King and take our place as citizens in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help us listen to you. Sometimes, Lord, we're, we're familiar with words in the Bible, the words of Jesus, and, and we sort of become immune to, to hearing your words of conviction or your words of comfort. But I pray that this will be real to us today, that you will speak to our hearts and that we will respond in the way that you want us to respond. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.